Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA, our weekly deep dive covering what you need to know about news and politics from across the pond. When you hear the name Rudy Giuliani, which version of him do you think of? The former mayor of New York was once a media darling and dubbed America's mayor. Since then, he's transitioned into a different sort of character, notorious for his links to the former president Donald Trump. Andrew Kurtzman has followed Giuliani's career perhaps more closely than any other journalist. He's written two books about Giuliani, the most recent of which being Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. And he's here to discuss the former politician's trajectory and the mark he's left on America's democracy with me now in the bunker. Andrew, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, Andrew, where does Giuliani find himself at this particular moment? And while his position is shocking in a way, does it actually surprise you that he's come to be where he is? It is a surprise to me. I mean, I've been covering Giuliani for uh, uh, 30 years. (laughs) I started covering him uh, at City Hall uh, when he um, won the mayoralty back in New York. And, you know, he was a different kind of person back then. I mean, he was... Um, he was an authoritarian and he was, uh, sometimes, uh, cruel and uh, arguably racist, but he was also an extraordinarily effective mayor, very strategic, you know, very, very smart. Um, the Giuliani of today is sloppy. He's forgetful. He's kind of lost in a fog and, uh, you know, we can discuss what happened between then and now. Um, But the question is kind of, is it a surprise? I think both to me and also to the people who who worked for him for decades, they're all surprised by his downfall. The sort of legal trouble he's in at the moment, could you just give me a little bit of a a snapshot of of what's going on there now? It's all kind of linked to January 6th and Donald Trump, isn't it? Sure. All in that mess. Yeah, he's in terrible, terrible trouble. He's close to bankrupt, facing criminal uh, charges, in Georgia for the efforts to reverse the results of the election. Uh, He's been named in a second indictment by the Justice Department. He's being sued for defamation by the voting machine manufacturers, Smartmatic and Dominion. He's being sued for defamation by two election workers in Georgia. He's in disbarment Um, proceedings in several different states where they are trying to take his uh, law license away from him. Uh, He has a sexual harassment lawsuit against him. You know, he's hit rock bottom. I find it really strange that someone who has a legal background can then find themselves in so much legal trouble. You'd imagine you'd be slightly more cautious having seen other people in these sort of precarious situations. Right. But was he always someone who was happy to to bend the law if it suited him? So there's a part in your book where you reference how he acted after a, a man named Patrick Derismond was shot by undercover police officers, where he released his criminal record and then his juvenile record in a way that was kind of not both controversial but legally questionable. Is one constant here a man who was happy to to bend the rules to what he saw as being some sort of greater good or to meet his own ends? I think that's a really smart question. I think you've drawn an interesting parallel. I mean, he has always pushed the envelope as a prosecutor back in the 1980s and as a mayor in the 1990s as a way of accomplishing his goals, right? I mean, his he first gained fame as kind of the most well-known, most acclaimed prosecutor in the world uh, back in the 80s because he took on the mob, he took on Wall Street. 
He took on corruption and became kind of a folk hero, an incorruptible man taking on, you know, the, the worst of the worst in the criminal world and in the financial world. So, yeah, he often used questionable means and it was called on it for much of his early career. And, you know, as you said, during his mayoralty, he had kind of an end justifies the means mentality. And if that meant tarnishing the reputation of, a, of someone who had been killed by unearthing juvenile records from decades earlier, he would do that. Now, that may be kind of a separate question from what he's done to himself, <laughs> yeah. right? He, I mean, what he's done to himself really um, it, it bespeaks someone who is sloppy now, who doesn't really, he's not bending the law, he's breaking the law. Yeah. What did he, did he seem to have a real talent when he first came across your radar? I mean, removing whether you agree with his politics or not. To me at the moment, he seems like someone who is an attention seeker and wants to court controversy and is doing it with a real sort of bludgeoning way of doing it, just sloppily, widely. But when you first came across him, was he actually quite a, a talented individual in a way? Oh, yeah. The answer is yes. Look, uh, I mean, I interviewed hundreds of people for my book. And uh, among those I interviewed were fellow attorneys in the U.S. attorney's office that he led in New York. And so it's a very high-profile office. And to a person, every deputy uh, U.S. attorney I spoke with admired him, didn't necessarily like him. But they respected him because he was so smart. And most of them felt he was really fair. You know, from my perspective, he was brilliant. Absolutely a brilliant man. I mean, what he what he did with the mob, what he did with Wall Street, no one else had ever been able to do that before. You know, you're talking about a very, very gifted lawyer at the time. Was one issue there, though, then, when he went into politics, that this prior experience kind of completely shaped his his policy ideas and the agendas that he followed. He felt to me as someone who he was laser focused on one thing and going down one lane. And then I don't have much of an impression of where he stands on anything else other than being super hard on crime and then now being super loving of Trump. <laughs> um, he made a kind of political progression as it basically suited his career, right? So he, throughout his childhood, and I did multiple interviews with people, you know, growing up, he was a liberal Democrat. His heroes were uh, John F. Kennedy and uh, Bobby Kennedy. You know, I I went through his uh, college newspaper columns that he wrote, and they're all extremely liberal on their diatribes against the Republicans. (laughs) As uh, his career took off at, at the United States Justice Department, and President, you know, Reagan was elected, suddenly Rudy Giuliani was a Republican. (laughs) And his politics have drifted rightward ever since. And that's kind of tracks what was happening to the nation's politics at the time. And somewhere along the line, he went from being a conservative to a right-wing ideologue. So has he always been an opinion taker? rather than maker. I mean, I don't, I almost, he's, he's such a big figure, but it feels like talking him about him in that way makes him seem someone who's always been on the, the front foot. Is he actually someone who's sort of taken on what's going around him and worked out and reflected that back? 
No, I, I, don't, I, I think as mayor, he developed a lot of strong beliefs about uh, how to run the city, about how to run government. And it wasn't just kind of your standard boilerplate, limited government, lower taxes stuff. It was really kind of a whole very thought through philosophy about privatizing public services, right? About crime. You know, there were very, very novel and cutting edge practices. And he instituted the whole concept of quality of life in New York City, which then had never been kind of defined, right? But it was a very, very wise encapsulation of what the problem was when he took over in 93. You know, that was a philosophy and that was a way of looking at government that had not been done before. And he, to a large extent, he he reversed the fortunes of New York because of it. He was very popular at many points of his mayoralty. Well, talking about how popular he was, you mentioned him as being a sort of celebrity prosecutor. But to me, I was only eight when 9-11 happened. And I mean, I remember the gravitas of the event, but not really specifics of how the world reacted. And I had no idea until I read your book about him coming over to Britain and receiving an honorary knighthood (laughs) from the Queen, for example. Yeah. Can you tell me about what he was like in the aftermath of that event and whether the memory of it also matches up with the reality of what he was like in the aftermath of that? Of course, of course. Well, I write about this extensively in my book because I was with him on 9-11. I was working at the time as a television reporter for New York One News, which is a 24-hour news station in New York. And when the planes hit the towers, my uh, uh, news director just said, go find Giuliani. And so I bolted in downtown in a you know terrified a taxi driver to take me down to ground zero while I was driving down uh, the first tower imploded uh, I would literally watch it outside of my taxi window and um, the eventually the taxi driver slammed on the brakes and kicked me out of the car and this policeman screamed at me to get off the street and I was like I, I'm looking for Giuliani and he said oh Giuliani he's right there <laughs> and just by you know, coincidence, Giuliani was standing with his aides covered in dust. They had, you know, they had escaped death and um, they were trying to figure out what to do. And Giuliani saw me and he's like, waved me over. He said, Andrew, let's go. And, you know, we did the trek that I guess mile or two on foot looking for a way to reestablish control of the city. And it was, you know, it was a really desperate moment. I mean, at one point, the second tower fell and this like, you know, mushroom cloud of dust and fire started chasing us. And, you know, we ran for our lives together. And in that whole experience, I saw someone who was really able to take control of an out of control situation. I mean, he was, you know, he was the calmest one in the bunch. Did that then moving forward change the way he behaved? Did it alter him as a mayor in a way? Right. It altered him in the months that followed. His hard edge kind of went away, and he became an enormously fatherly, compassionate man. I mean, he attended 200 funerals. And, you know, I attended some of those funerals, and I wrote about that. And, you know, they were all, you know, his eulogies were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I mean, he obviously cared a great deal, and the city responded. 
Then <laughs> he chose to cash in on all that fame, yeah. right? So he leaves the mayoralty and he decides to open up a, a, a consulting firm, Giuliani Partners. And basically he made a hundred million dollars in revenue in just five years. And he took on a lot of sketchy clients. You know, he wasn't really much of a management consultant. Basically they just wanted the imprimatur of America's mayor because it gave them kind of a respectability. It was extremely cynical and uh, it made him a very, very, very wealthy man. And that changed him also because he became extremely materialistic. Is that kind of how you know different levels of fame can alter a person? So, you know, he was famous before he went into the mayoralty, but then this gave him such a trajectory of fame. But on that, the the idea of a celebrity politician now, as we know, seems to be quite the norm. Was he a bit of a prototype for people like? And you know, we always come back to Donald Trump at the moment when we speak about American politics. But was he a prototype in a way for Donald Trump of that model of being a a famous person, a figurehead? It's a good question. I, I mean, America has always revolved around political celebrities, right? John F. Kennedy was a political celebrity, right? Ronald Reagan was an actor, and he was kind of a political celebrity. So we're, we, you know, we gravitate towards personalities, for better or worse. And, you know, the pivot points of the Giuliani story, if you're talking about the rise and fall, are 9-11, and then the 2008 presidential race, yeah. right? So he he achieved extraordinary fame. At one point, a poll showed that after 9-11, he was more popular than the Pope. He decides to run for president in 2008, uh, spends a whole year as the front runner before the actual primaries began, and then it was over within a month. It was a disaster. It was a total disaster. And... Suddenly, his 9-11 halo was gone. You know, America started to move on from 9-11. And he went through a terrible period. And I write about this extensively in my book. He went into a depression. He started drinking. And uh, Donald Trump, of all people, came to his rescue and kind of hid him out at Mar-a-Lago for a month while Giuliani escaped the glare of the press it was Donald Trump who really brought Giuliani back into the limelight, yeah. right? 2016, Donald Trump ran for president, and he needed Giuliani because Trump didn't have any political allies at the time. That's what brought the two of them together. They needed each other. Now, it's an interesting story, but the rise and fall of Giuliani pivots on Donald Trump. Do you think it's strange that he became such a, a lapdog? Why wouldn't he rival Trump? Why is that not something he seemed to have the the strategy to be able to to do, to really utilize Trump yeah. to boost himself as opposed to it kind of being a desperate clinging on, actually using right. it to bring himself back? I, th I mean, it's a great question. The switch in the power dynamic was just fascinating, right? I mean, Giuliani was Trump's role model when Giuliani was mayor, and suddenly it's Trump calling the shots when Giuliani has burned through all his political capital. I mean, there was nowhere to go politically for Giuliani. And um, he saw his future as kind of Trump's. And, you know, one of the things that I learned through the reporting for the book, and was from his ex-wife, was that Giuliani craves relevance more than anything. He was It was killing him to be kind of irrelevant in the public spotlight. And 
And Trump, you know, brought him back to Washington. He put, brought him back to the front pages and made, you know, Giuliani a political star again. And he was willing to kind of, I don't know, humiliate himself a bit as Trump's, you know, number two, I guess. Giuliani's legacy, as you described, seems to be very tarnished. And I'm not sure there's very much tangible left behind Giuliani other than a fascinating portrait of a person who's reached a monumental high and then dragged themselves down. But do you think he has changed the way that politics is conducted? Can you pin some of the blame for how strangely politics is run in America at the moment at his door? I mean, there's been such a degradation of the integrity of the political process under Trump and Giuliani that, uh, you know, whatever good Giuliani um, did as mayor has been completely eviscerated by what he did in the 2020 election. It was a disgrace to the nation. You know, it eroded democracy. He just did it with impunity. And, you know, he's he even said it himself in, in an interview a few years back. He told The New Yorker, you know, I'm afraid that on my tombstone, it's going to read Giuliani. He lied for Trump. Um, and there was, you know, there's some truth in that. I don't think, you know, you're going to see much heroic about Rudy Giuliani when, you know, when history looks back at him. Do you feel sad on a personal level looking at how Giuliani's turned out? Your book kind of feels to me like there are some moments of respect for him and you were very fair right. on him and that he's had positive contributions. And you've obviously been there at what must have been a, a traumatizing time for yourself and you shared that together with him. You know that he's right. not an all-out bad person necessarily on a personal level. Do you feel sad seeing the way he's turned out? I mean, it's a tragedy. I understand the depths of the tragedy and, you know, as someone who has spent decades following Giuliani, walking alongside of him on 9-11, you know, interviewing hundreds of his aides. You know, I obviously feel some kind of weird bond with him, even though we, we don't talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as his biographer, you know, in a way I have a relationship with him. And so, uh, you know, there is an emotional element to my watching what's happened, but it's all kind of wiped away by watching what he did to the country. It was cynical it was illegal, it tarnished reputations, it was just venal. And so, you know, you can't really be sad for someone who would do something like that. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. That's been a really interesting insight into a, a man who we can at least agree on being interesting, if nothing else. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed The Bunk USA, there's a new episode every Saturday, as well as new episodes of The Bunker every day of the week. And for £3 a month, you can get them all ad-free and early. Search Bunker Podcast Patreon to find out how, or there's a link in the show notes. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for listening to The Bunker USA. Bunker USA was presented by Jacob Jarvis and produced by Chris Jones with assistance from Adam Wright. Audio productions from me, Robin Lieburn. Art is by Jim Parrott. Social media by Jess Harpin. And our music is by Kenny Dickinson. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production.